Welcome to the Law of Startups podcast. I'm Mike Schneider. And I'm Joe Wallen. Thank you for being with us today. Today, we're lucky to have in the studio Mr. Chris Hopin. Chris is the founder and CEO of a company called Switch, a fintech company in Seattle. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks, Joe. Uh, happy to be here. Yeah. So, Chris, you are a, uh, you've done the company founding thing a few different times, a couple different times. How many yeah, different times? Yeah. Um, I guess this is my third, or it depends on how you count. I guess there was, I've been early on, employee number, you know, 25 at another one, and employee number, I guess, three at another one. Uh, so, but in actuality, probably this is my third one. Okay. Well, yeah. employee, employee number three, that's pretty... Yeah. Not very many people can say they were employee number three in a startup. Did that company have a good exit? Uh, yeah, it's actually, it's pretty funny. Um, it was, I had done my first startup um, and then had to go back and get a real job again and found another startup and, and went there. Um, that company, uh, it actually came down, it was, a, it was an early mapping company uh, in the GIS space. And uh, it got purchased, actually it came down to a co competitive purchase between Intergraph, which I would have had to move to Huntsville, Alabama uh, from Seattle, right. which would have been a big, a big transition, or ESRI. And so ESRI actually bought the company and uh, still leverages kind of the core platform and technology that we have today. I actually saw it. Uh, it won an award at, at the first Java 1 conference oh, really? back in the day and I'm like hey wait a minute that's my app like that's what I that's the platform that I built Are hey, you I, me? I worked because it because it got sold and I decided I, I had already left and gone to spry and so I decided like now nah, I'm not gonna move to Redlands down in California where they were and and it was pretty much the Huntsville Alabama when it was like you know flip a coin you could be in either place I was like not going to Huntsville Alabama so yeah. like I'll just like transition and, and head over to Spry. Spry, wow, okay. Yeah. So that's curious. So you went you're you're you grew up in the Northwest, right? You went to Western Washington University. Yep. Yeah, I went to Western Washington University. I was um, you know, the claim to fame to all my gray hair is that uh, I was on the internet back in nineteen eighty six with uh, Dr. Jim Hearn. Uh, this is back in the UUCP days in the early internet and bulletin boards and news groups and, and the like. So yeah, those are early days. Mike, did you play around with those things back in back in those days? Or was that prior to your? Yeah, I did. I think I, I must be a little bit younger than you. I I was do probably uh, in maybe early high school when that was happening, and I was uh, we had a a modem on my Commodore one twenty eight and used to do uh, dial in dial in bulletin boards and things like that. It was a uh, it was pretty cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool back then. Yeah, my my first was a you know a cassette based Timex Sinclair that I got from a Fred Meyer. And wow. I had no idea how to use it and kind of started from there. But early on, it was, you know, I was one of those, you know, I played a lot of sports, but at the same time, uh, you know, I was one of those sort of, I guess, uh, hyperactive kids a little bit. And so my parents would always buy me the Radio Shack, you know, radio kits, yeah. you know, to the sort of <laughs> when you, I guess you graduated from regular puzzles when the, you, you sort of blew through those too quickly and they'd buy you the radio kits with the resistors and transistors and You'd end up building your own radio. So I used to. I, I spent a lot of time with the Commodore 64 as a kid. I had yeah. a couple summers of intensive Commodore 64 time. But did you ever have a Trash 80? Remember the Trash 80? I kind of skipped over the Trash 80s, uh, and then it's kind of funny because the Z80 chip actually came back. Um, and so the first startup that I did in between, I, I was early in my career, is with this group called Boeing Advanced Systems. And in between Boeing Advanced Systems and the company that got bought by by Esri, um, 
I did another startup, and so it came back, and, and it was this embedded platform that we had built, and it was u- back using Z80s again. Huh, wow. So it was pretty funny. The longevity of that chip, you know, if you go back and look at it over history, it was just, like, phenomenal how long, time. How long it, it survived. That was a, the TRS-80 was, if I recall, yeah. I, my perception was that was a pretty expensive machine when it came out. That was not, like, a machine a parent bought for a kid yeah, um, or a kid could afford, but I, maybe my recollection's wrong. Yeah, I think my first you know, sort of 5150 kind of model, IBM 5150 model, I think was a AT&T sort of branded device that, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly how much it cost, but it was all really expensive relative to everything back then. Right. You know. Right. So fun stuff. So you just yeah. had like a natural inclination somehow. You were drawn to this, this arena, this early stage company starting a thing. You were just drawn to that, to yeah. that spot. Yeah, for sure. And even in college, I, uh, I got pulled in, actually worked with David Cole, who is the 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 GM finally for you know the big Windows ninety five, Windows ninety eight, that whole transition. Uh, worked with David Cole up at Western um, on a on a project that actually got sold multiple times to uh, different publishing houses, um, and so we worked on software you know early on. Even and that's kind of one of the ways that I paid my way through school and and. Um, uh, yeah, so it's it's just kind of been one of those natural things that has pulled me in, and and I think uh, you know for everybody else that's done it or or thought about doing it, um, you know it's often the passion and the creativity part that sort of sucks you in and makes it not feel like work every day. And as long as I can find those, you know, it, you know I'm pretty happy about it. Right. So. Well, maybe you had some influences from your father. He, he was a, he he had a business too. He didn't like he had a really cool. Boat building business. Yeah, yeah. No, he was super successful. Um, learned a lot of lessons from him really early on. Learned a lot of lessons from his employees that worked in the in the manufacturing boat manufacturing industry. You know, and they would constantly tell me, you know, go run away. Go. You don't want to be. You don't want to be in this business. It's a <laughs> seasonal, you know, luxury item business. Like, right. You know, it's the just the ups and downs of of those kinds of businesses are pretty tough, but. Um, but yeah, no, certainly the the entrepreneurial lessons and just the passion to create, I think, you know, is definitely definitely came from him and and um, you know, he got a lot of satisfaction especially in his latter years sort of seeing the successes that I was able to have and achieve and yeah. and really starting, you know, in his mind starting from scratch because he feel like, you know, he didn't leave me with any of that stuff. Yeah, uh, but still you with millions of dollars to go well, start a first but startup. Yeah, not that, but I mean even just the lessons, you know, he yeah. he was pretty humble. You know, from that regard, and and just didn't believe that a lot of what he did sort of really wore off and was applicable. Hmm. Um, you know, in this in this space, it was it was pretty funny. He he, he was trying to do one other last project, and uh, he kept talking about you know paying back his investors, you know, with interest. I was like, it doesn't work that way anymore, Dad. You know, it's like people you want don't, more than interest. Yeah, exactly. They they want some equity. You know, they want some ownership. So anyway, there there were those kind of fundamental shifts that happened. Yeah, and uh, you know, so he he often felt like it was just a, a pretty big disconnect versus what he he went through and lived through. And Still, but you feel like you learned a lot from him. Oh, a ton. Yeah, yeah for sure. Well, Mike, you were probably influenced by your father too. He was a he started he still. Yeah, yeah, my he's still in business. He still he he won't retire. Uh, he just does. Uh, he loves working. Um, but yeah, my 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 grandfather and my father. My my father's running the business. My grandfather started, um, and they you know they uh, 
there's something about like I think when it comes to learning uh, entrepreneurship from your parents, um, it, it, like you mentioned, it may not it may not translate exactly to the business you end up in, but if it, what I find is, you know, it sets a good example for the the fact that people have the ability to go out and make their own way. You don't need to necessarily work for somebody else, but there's there's ways for you to constantly be out there looking for ways to generate value for people and to capture that value. Um, maybe it's just more of a mindset. Um, uh, I definitely got it from, from my family. It, it, uh, it was a good, nice gift to get. Yeah. I think there's something about just seeing someone, um, do something and then you're like, well, if that, if that, if that person could do it, I can do it too. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I think there's something about proximity to people who do stuff. It just like, something about it like makes you think that, well, you know, it's not that hard. Right. Whereas if they're, if, if you're not proximate to them, it can seem really impossible like i don't know how sure, if you read it in forbes magazine versus yeah yeah if you have, magazine versus yeah. seeing it face to face and you know the person yeah yeah for sure so tell us okay so your latest your latest your latest thing tell us about this thing it's called switch what tell me tell me what the genesis of this idea was yeah so switch is is really kind of uh you know we've been at it for now about three years which is a long time um in a in a typical kind of seattle startup context um, but continually I have to kind of reinforce with everybody that this isn't your ordinary sort of Seattle startup. Um, and Switch is really all about improving. Everybody has credit cards, right? And, and Switch is all about doing two things. One is removing the burden that all of us have carrying cards, right? It's the predominant way that people pay, um, but it's literally a pain in the butt. Right, the, the 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 financial institutions drop off a card and they kind of wave goodbye and say, "I hope you use our card. I hope you activate it. I hope you uh, continue to use it." Um, and at the same time, back in 2015, when we when we started, uh, the EMV or the chip-based card shipments were really sort of taking off. Um, and there's been all sorts of stories about sort of the fraud shift um, from physical to uh, you know. Um, uh, to online, and uh, we've been sort of growing in that space, but we were getting, you know, two, sometimes three cards a year that we had to replace, and that turned in, every card replacement turned into a password management nightmare, because uh, you had to go remember your passwords. Where do I even have my cards stored online? I, everybody has like 3.2 cards on average. Where do I have them? How do I update them? I got to go through the password reset and click through how many different emails to reset passwords that I don't remember, right? And so it's just that nightmare that, like, nobody's really thought about the burden of, of the cardholder and the card carrier. So um, we focus on on alleviating that burden. In the financial industry, people call those experiences. You have all sorts of experiences that, Joe, you never knew of that, with yeah. your financial institution. So. Right. Uh, one simple experience is, you know, you sit down on the bus and break your card, right? And now you can't use it. Uh, it won't go in the machine anymore. And you got to go get a replacement card, like, you know, either instantly or you got to call them. And, and so that whole experience you go through right. interfacing with the financial institution is just one experience. So we touch on about seven or eight different experiences. Um, we try to help the cardholder and improve that cardholder experience while at the same time, create a positive relationship and, and positive loyalty and pro- positive experience with that cardholder for the issuer so that you go, oh, I don't mind my bank anymore. Right? I'm not mad when that new card shows up and say, the heck with them, I'm going to go switch and use some other card. Right. Because the, the, the financial implications of what I'm talking about is that 
say you go on to Zappos, you buy a hundred dollar pair of shoes, right? A dollar eighty seven of that hundred dollars goes to whatever brand financial institution is on your card. Hmm. If for whatever reason you broke your card, you had fraud on the card, and you got that the call from the you know the call that you hate and say, Joe, did you buy cigarettes in Peoria yesterday? Did you buy TV at Best Buy in right. Chicago? Did you you know by the time you get to the third answer, you're like, no, no, no. They're like, all right, we're shutting down your card. So if you get it replaced for that reason, right, you pull out a different card, and if you if that happened right before you were going to buy that shoe, buy those that pair of shoes on Zappos, that dollar eighty seven that would have gone to whatever bank, B of A, Chase, whatever card that was that you right. would have used that just had fraud, that's going to now switch over to the other card that you pull out of your wallet to make that Zappos transaction. And now the bank just lost that revenue, right? The, the card issuer just lost that revenue. And so from a financial perspective, if you think about the hundreds of millions of cards going back into the market on an annualized basis and the revenue swing that that creates between financial institutions, they have no control, they have no visibility over the revenue swing. So we're trying to create a solution or a set of solutions that really help with the cardholder experience and improve that. So there's more brand loyalty back to their financial institution and, and also help the issuers through that driving increased loyalty retain or recapture revenue that's lost when they have replacement events um, and drive increasing revenue um, when they even when they don't have replacement events right. so anyway so that's that's kind of the nutshell of, of really kind of where we're focused and and what we're working on yeah so Mike what do you what's your reaction yeah I think it seems like a good idea sometimes for me it seems like if if my credit cards didn't expire every couple of years I might never unsubscribe from some of these things that are I'm, I'm subscribed to on the internet it's almost like a there's there's the the counter yeah. view which is uh, oh, thank God these cards are expiring everywhere or I'll just get charged into into um, perpetuity um, but uh, but I can see the I can see the benefit though and I can certainly see the benefit to companies that have to do recurring charges we have a I've been uh, for listeners that have listened to the show for a while I launched a a subscription wellness platform called uh, Holistrio. Um, and it's a subscription sure. app. And so now I'm keenly aware of the problem of people's cards expiring and them, uh, you know, not having renewed for no reason other than the fact that they just haven't had a chance to update the card, which is a shame because yeah. we work so hard to get people to sign up to begin with. We'd hate to lose them for that reason. Yeah, exactly. There's a there's a, a, a fellow that I know that owns a winery, significant winery here in town, and, and they have a huge wine club. You know, it's over 2,000 people. Um and that they have a full time and a half set of resources that all they do is call people back and update their cards. Huh. I mean, it's just, it, wow. it, it, it's crazy. And so here's the other stat that'll kind of blow you away a little bit. Um, so one of the big uh, travel companies here in town, you, you guys would know the brand, but um, they, uh, they have about 40,000 to 50,000 that cards that expire every single month and that's just expiration so if you think about that how many cards are becoming inactive within that e-commerce platform it's significant right so if you think about that number and then you sort of turn the turn the coin over and you look at the other side of that one of the larger financial institutions in this area i posed the question to them and just said how many of your cards make it to expiration before being replaced and they said, well, we use a, we use a standard four-year replacement period, and 
they wouldn't tell me the exact number, but I guessed at 15%, and they said that would be high. Oh, that actually make that it. That make it to expiration. That aren't shut off because of a fraud which or gives something. You, which gives you this, between the, the e-commerce you know, platform that I was talking about and the right. number that are coming off that, and the combination of this financial institution that's telling us how many actually make it to expiration. Right. It's telling you that, like, there are hundreds of thousands on that e-commerce platform that are being compromised or are becoming inactive for fraud reasons or other right. reasons, lost, theft, stolen, yeah. and uh, that don't even make it to expiration, which is like this mind-blowing you know, issue. And so we have some people that push back and say, you know, how frequently does this happen? Because you think about it in your own context. And uh, they're like, well, it doesn't really happen that frequently, maybe once a year, maybe right. worst case, twice a year. But if you go to the financial institutions, they are drowning, right, right. in these card replacements. Right. Like, think about Equifax. Right. 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 Hundred. Well, now it's over two hundred thousand cards were exposed. Those oh. cards get shut down. Those cards get, you know, have to get reissued. So right. a large financial institution, they have to mass reissue twenty five thousand, thirty thousand, fifty thousand cards. Yeah. Right. That's that's in addition to just the day to day replacement sure. when Joe sits on the bus and you know breaks his card. Right. It's so funny because I don't know, like, if like I just had a bank send me a new card recently, and it must just the cost of sending the new card alone must be yeah. not insignificant if you started counting like the labor costs and everything yeah. else that go into just sending someone a new card. Yeah, it, it's 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 really funny when you start looking at the regulatory aspects, you know, in fintech, and it's one of the reasons that you know fintech companies have to raise so much money is is just the compliance issue, but. Um, the other thing that it creates is it just creates a really fractured environment. And so there are really, even if you go all the way to the top, you know, Chase, City, B of A, Wells, none of them, they all have other companies that just do the provisioning of the card, the printing right. of the plastic, the mailing, the call center for the 800 number on the front of the, all of that is outsourced and it's separate companies that are regulated. And, and part of it too is that the, Financial, you know, the, the financial institutions really segment around these experiences. Hmm. Um, we can have conversations with people who look at us sideways, and we look at it and go, okay, this is a common capability that goes across all these different experiences. But if we talk to the head of, you know, uh, new card issuance experience, right. right, and we start talking about our, our use case and we don't speak their language, they're like, we don't get it. Huh. We're like... We're trying to help you get cards into circulation. Right. It's pretty clear. Like, right. well, and they're like, well, no, no. Well, you know, they have this whole workflow in their head, and they've been doing it for 15 years. And if you don't talk their language, it's like game over. Well, so so you're so tell us how Switch works. So you and you guys are live right now, right? I mean, you guys have a beta yeah, site yeah. live, right? So you can actually sign up and use it right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. You can go to www.switchme.com and use it. Um, that's our, our top wallet application. Um, we've got people that are using that every day. Top wallet was really geared much more around sort of the consumer, a holistic consumer experience for managing your passwords, you know, safely and securely. Right. Um, managing all your cards and managing where you're using your cards. And so you can keep track of and see, we actually put little logos on the actual card itself. So you can see the Amazon logo and the right. Nike logo and the AT&T logo and the, the different logos. And it shows you just by looking at your card, like where your card's being used. Sure. Um, and so you can track and link cards to different sites. Um, and so um, that's something if people are interested, they can, they can certainly go grab it and use it. Um, we just last Thursday announced uh, our latest sort of offering, which is um, 
really geared towards embedding a lot of the core updating functionality um, into existing mobile banking uh, applications and services. Uh, so if you think about card activation, uh, you think about where the site you go to, like maybe uh, you know at a retailer to go pay your bill. Uh, you can look at your card. You can look at statements. Um, you could you'll be able to log into those accounts um, and be able to pull it up and say, make this my preferred card across eBay, Uber, PayPal, Starbucks, right? right? All these different sites. And, and then we'll do the updating for you, but we're just embedded in their existing, uh, their existing UI um, and the, either the merchant and or the financial institution uh, is, is who, you know, we generate revenue from in that situation. So Mike, this could actually help manage your, your trouble because you've subscribed for so many things online that you've forgotten about. And it's hard to track them. This could actually help on that. <laughs> this could be what. It... <laughs> so, from a from a technical standpoint, like how tricky is this? I mean, I don't know. Forget, you know, feel free to not answer if it's part of the, the the secret sauce of the of the service. But like, you know, is it difficult to convince a, a you know like a big retailer or or, um, or someone to to basically let you speak to their to their system i mean do they do they have to open up apis so that you can send them updates to card numbers and i mean it seems like like uh it might be an interesting problem to solve and it might require like uh, lots of technical discussions with your customers that are that are hard to get them to have with you um yeah it hasn't been that that the conversation part hasn't been bad um, I think the approach that we're taking, the easiest way to think about this, I think if, if people are familiar with, with, you know, sort of tech and fintech in general, they've probably heard about Stripe. And, you know, what we're trying to be with Cardsaver and with this latest offering in the, in the Cardsaver API and service is really like Stripe, but Stripe faces the merchant, right? The Stripe is there to clear transactions, right? And to run credit card transactions for the merchant. What we're trying to do is we're trying to face issuers, card issuers, but what we're trying to do is create a way for them to get cards into circulation across thousands and thousands of sites on behalf of their user. And so from an architectural perspective, it's very similar to what Stripe does. You know, the, the, each of the merchants has their own, in the Stripe case, they have their own, you know, it runs on top of Amazon, AWS, but they have their own private cloud, if you will, their private container and their private instances that clear all their transactions in much in the same way. We provide that private cloud instance to financial institution and or financial institution slash merchant uh, to be able to push cards to sites that their users want to push cards to. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So I imagine there's just a ton of, uh, I mean, I, I feel like I, I don't pay attention to any of these art, these offers, these card offers. Like, I'm sure. too hassled, too busy. Yeah, yeah. And then I always think about, well, it sounds like there's, they're really, it sounds like there's some incentives there that might be valuable to me, and I'm sure there are, but like, yeah. who, has the, who has the time to figure it out? Right, right, right. And, and so the incentive, <laughs> coming back to Mike's point, the, the incentive on the financial institution or the merchant side, oftentimes, uh, if you think about um, another large white glove retailer here that we're working with, um, they, you know, they, they probably have, you know, close to a million cards, um, that are branded. Um, you don't really see the bank brand on them. Uh, they love the fact that what Cardsaver allows them to do is drive outside, what they call outside spend. Hmm. So normally people would use those cards, you know, at physical retail outlets to go buy, 
you know, whatever they're going to buy, pants, cologne, whatever. Right. Um, but now this gives them the ability, as soon as they activate their card, they can now push it into Uber, PayPal, Amazon, all these different places. And so it drives outside spend outside of their retail outlets, which the interchange revenue is shared, right, between the brand and the bank. Right. And so it's driving more revenue to the program, which gives them more cash back and associates more value to their brand at the end. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. And, Mike, I don't know if you've experienced this as well, but, like, for example, for some reason, like, I tied my Uber account to some card I never use. Like, right. who knows why? Like, right. the moment I send it for Uber, like, whatever, maybe the card I usually used, I misplaced that day or something so now yeah. what happens is I've got this weird and then I lose tra I lose track of what's going on like right. somebody's using the uber like one of my kids yeah, and yeah. then I'm getting the f I'm getting charges and then I don't I don't remember to b look at the statement balance or whatever right, right, and just right. kind of it's kind of bizarre I it, this must be really common this yes must be really common. yes it, it is it is I uh, is very very common um, and and it's one of the reasons that Another reason that the financial institutions, they feel like if they can, at activation time, if they can get their card into places like Uber, into right. places like Netflix, into right. places like AT&T, into places like Comcast, if they can get their card in there right away, it's out of sight, it's out of mind, right. and it's revenue to them. Right. And so for us, they just look at it and go, it's all revenue upside. So the, right. on, a, on a modeling, on the modeling side of things for, for the card saver API, all we have to do is generate $40 of additional outside spend on other sites yeah. for them to be, you know, making money right. based on what we charge them. So you think about that, $40 across four, five, six, ten sites, that's a small amount of money. Right. And right. so they look at it as just like, look, we want to get yeah. this thing embedded. We want to start using this as, as fast as we can. Huh. So it's been pretty interesting. Yeah. Tell us... Uh, before we wrap up, like, give us a little bit of a background on, like, so the origin story of the company. Uh, you know, every every founder has to decide. You know, Joe and I have talked about this a bunch of times. You know, each each startup founder, you maybe have maybe four or five runs at this because startups take a long time, and so you have to. We, we always talk about being real careful about what your opportunities are, which ones you choose to pursue because they could potentially suck yeah. up a big chunk of your life. How, how did you choose this particular opportunity? You know, did you have a background in the in, in this space, or to tell us a little bit about the story about how this how this idea came up and, and why you decided to pursue it and not others. Yeah, um, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think um, I was a, an initial co-founder of a company called Aventail, and I, I look back over that period of time, and, you know, that how was a huge, was chunk, of, a huge chunk of my life. Yeah, how many years uh, was that? I think by the time it was all said and done, it was probably 11. Wow. Um, you know, three major phases of the business. You know, when you get into the point where you're, into a series E, right? right? right. Uh, you start getting, if you didn't already have gray hair, you start getting a lot more gray hair yeah. pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, and the cap tables are pretty ugly. Yeah. Like, it, but once you get, once you do one of those, you realize like, I don't ever want to do one of those again. Like <laughs> I like clean deals that are like, you know, easy to calculate and you don't, you right. don't need a, a math degree to, right. to sort of solve those. But, um, so that was a, you know, that was a big one. Um, and then the next, you know, the very next one that, that I had that is probably the period of time when I first met you, Joe, um, you know, that one, um, you know, and I didn't, my corporate counsel there said, you know, at the end of it, it was 30 months, you know, start to finish. And it was, you know, a, a big return very, very quickly. Um, we only had about 10 employees. 
um, and and start to finish, it was like one of the fastest that he had ever seen, wow. right? And yeah. so I've seen sort of both extremes, as right. it, you know, like you point out, Mike. Um, I think um, I don't know. I mean, in some ways, I, I think these. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember the guy from Sun Microsystems that um, you know he he basically said, look. You know, inventions and new capabilities are out there. They exist already. It's our job to go find them. And so from my perspective, I kind of, you know, gravitated towards that and it resonated with me pretty heavily because I think um, a lot of people get, you know, there's so much hype around new, around being first, around innovating, around, you know, true invention and, and, and those sorts of things. But in reality, I think there's a there's a nugget of truth in that, in that that these things are out there, right? And and in some ways they find you. Um, and in this case, even with Switch, one of the things that we have to do to be able to support you know thousands and thousands of sites, it's kind of funny that we bring up the my old mapping sort of company that got sold to ESRI because the the part of our IP really comes back to the way that people read and interact with websites and the, the spatial relationship between web elements and HTML elements is very, very important. We as humans process them very quickly. People who build automation platforms, which you think is a big part of what we do, and it is, but they only think about DOM relationships or document object model relationships and the web page and how they're structured. And so nobody's really stumbled on the fact, I think we're one of the first ones that have brought together the spatial aspect and the, what I call the spatial dimension and the DOM dimension. And when you merge those things together, you find that you could get very, very high success rates for automating these operations for humans, hmm. right? And so like that has been there, right? All of that's been there. It's just somebody stumbled across it. and so. You know, I have to be one of the first that kind of brought that together and stumbled across it. And I feel like you see this, right? And you can see it coming together and it just sucks you in, huh. right? And so it's almost like they find you as opposed to you find them. And like you're compelled, right? right. You're sort of drawn and, and it becomes something sort of bigger. There's certainly the other scenario like yeah. Matt Oppenheimer over at Remitly, right? Yeah. I mean, he looked at just the billions of billions of dollars of fees people were paying yeah. internationally and they had no ability right to 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 a to to find some other solution other than pay money right and it was more, mostly like extortion right and so it's like he lived abroad he saw it firsthand and you know he had passion around sort of fixing that problem and trying right. to solve it and so you you know that's what pulled him into you know doing that with remitly and so um, I think it's different for, you know, it's obviously different for different people, but, um, you know, from my perspective, I feel like, the, you know, when you find these kinds of things and you, you find both the opportunity um, and, you know, the solution to them, you know, it's a pretty powerful thing that, that like I said at the beginning, doesn't feel like work. Right. Right. And, and, and um, you're doing good for everybody. We're, we're trying to do, you know, create solutions that are, pricing models that are success-based so that, you know, people are excited about, you know, deploying what it is that we have. And, and at the end of the day, it's not coming out of the consumer's wallet because we feel like we pay enough fees already right. as, it, as, it, as it goes. So, um, yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So, Mike, you've, been, you've probably been sucked in like Chris has been in some, some way, shape, or form. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes it's interesting. Sometimes an idea just grabs you, and it makes you want to work on it right away. And if you're lucky, 
it keeps you excited long enough to get it over some kind of hump before the steam starts to run out. Cause not, not all ideas, some ideas get you real excited and then they wear off and some ideas are really long burning. Um, so yeah, I know it, I know what you mean. Um, so to, before we wrap up, how can, how can people find out more about switch? Um, where, where can customers go? How about or businesses that are interested in taking a look? What's the, what's the best way for them to find out more? Sure. Yeah, so the, the corporate, what's turning into more of the corporate branded site is just the www.switchme.com. Um, and then uh, if people are, you know, if there's folks that are uh, issuing cards uh, out there or have solutions that manage cards in any kind of way and want to get those, help get those cards into circulation, they can, they can certainly go to switchme.com or you can go directly to uh, cardsaver.com. Um, which is the, the new site that's just specifically focused on uh, the, the announcement from last week. Terrific. Nice. nice. So yeah, so switchme.com, check it out. And uh, Chris Hopin, uh, thank you very much for being on the show. And I'm sure if anyone wants to get a hold of you, they could probably just uh, hit you up on LinkedIn or LinkedIn? something. Or, sure. LinkedIn. or you could always email Mike or me and we could send you Chris's uh, email if you like. So yeah. thank you, everyone. Thanks, Chris, so much for being on the show. Hey, thank you, guys. This is awesome. Yeah. Thanks, everyone else, for listening. We'll see you all next week.